Section 9 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 The Fall of Israfel, Part 1. And the angel Israfel, whose heart strings are a lute, and who has the sweetest voice of all God's creatures. The Koran. The Bachelor's Club was crammed to its utmost capacity. There was a smoking concert on, and every bachelor had availed himself of the privilege of bringing two bachelors with him. Some had even broken the spirit of the by-law by going outside again to fetch in two more. There was always great curiosity to see us on these occasions, as Joseph Fogson, M.D., B.S.C., settled with the steward and the guests, always felt that there was a scientific flavor about the whiskey he paid for but this time on account of its being the may concert the crowd was greater than ever and everybody could mention to his relatives that he was going to a may meeting in not a few instances i suspected that the bachelors introduced for these occasions only were no better than they should be i did not see the fun of being wedged uncomfortably between two probably married men or having the room made unbearably hot by bachelors of questionable bona fides for so crowded was the club that smoking was going on even in the smoking-room. Still, it was not my business to expose my fellow-members or their guests, and I make it a rule to mind my own business. It is the only way of making it pay. The main attraction of these smoking concerts was the singing of Israfel Mondego. Israfel Mondego was the greatest celebrity of whom the club could boast, he was one of the most popular singers of the day. Thousands hung upon his lips and his eyebrows. His voice was nothing to speak of, still less to sing with. But it was well trained, and many ladies considered him the primo tenor of the world. He also wrote and composed most of his own songs. They were always in the minor. He was the most minor poet and musician ever known. The sale of these drawing-room ballads far surpassed that of Beethoven's works, and as he got a royalty on them as well as on those alien compositions he merely sang, Israfel made a good thing out of sweet, sad nonsense. Israfel was sweetly pretty. He had dark and rolling eyes, a passionate moustache, and ineffably melancholic hair. Israfel's event to our ranks was a great accession of strength to us and gave us a good advertisement. For a man who could have thrown his scented handkerchief where he would in the selectest circles of beauty and fashion, to dedicate himself to the higher bachelorhood was indeed a triumph for the cause. We gloried in Israfel's membership, and the only bitter in our cup, as distinct from our glass, was that he would sing at our smoking concerts. It was not that we could not bear the burden of his song, love, love, love. On the contrary, we welcomed Israfel's lyrics as a strong ally in our war against the tender emotion. But Israfel's singing imposed a strain upon our self-command which marred the ease and abandon that are the essence of smoking concerts. When he turned up the whites of his eyes to expose hopeless yearning or flew up at the gamut on the wings of some screamingly serious emotion, we did not like to laugh and give away his dignity in the presence of our guests. They, too, I soon found exercise an equal self-control for the sake of the hosts. It was really quite painful for both parties. 
this is why mondego's singing was as i have said the main attraction of our smoking concerts the guests who were pretty nearly always the same came to see if the members would laugh first the members came to see if their guests would laugh first it was a highly exciting race but the result was always a dead silence the conclusion of mondego's songs was always greeted with immense salvos of applause after which at a decent interval of a minute the audience always got immensely jocular and homeric bursts of laughter seemingly independent of one another resounded through the two rooms to-night israfel was in fine form he sat himself down before the hired piano and ran his perfumed hand over the ivory keys by way of prelude then he sang his very latest success none of us had heard it before none of us had the slightest inkling of what was to come it is well that fate stretches a veil before the future well most of all for thee mcgillicuddy israfel sang the island of love fly with me where amaranthine blossoms are pale with passion's flame where larger moons and lather than possums know naught of sin and shame too long the world's cold teaching hath oppressed us my sweetest sweet sweetheart in vain we schooled our hearts to be asbestos we cannot may not part god built an isle where mystic shadow hovers across the slumbrous seas the dim enchanted isle of love and lovers and drowsy melodies a dream of restful roses poppies lilies and lips that lie on lips and eyes that burn like purple daffodillies while time unnoted slips come sweet where day and night are one with twilight and breathing one with bliss where sun and moon and stars shall faint in thy light and life be one long kiss at this point a dreadful thing happened as the long kiss died away up the ceiling israfel's eyes kept on ecstatically examining the chandelier while his dainty tapering fingers mechanically played the accompaniment suddenly an awful roar shook the air violent as the rattle of celestial artillery I shall never forget the horror of the moment inextinguishable laughter had seized on the bachelors club the club was one chaos of convulsive forms the big b bachelors were laughing the little b bachelors were laughing mcgillicuddy was laughing the dusky hindu steward was laughing and even the waiters who had been crowded on to the landing were laughing the worst of it was the race between the big b bachelors and the little b bachelors had again ended in a dead heat you couldn't tell which had begun first who has not been in a solemn situation in which he wanted to laugh and dared not 
bite your lips turn your head away think of all the sacred or nasty things in the world and at last almost forget you want to laugh then you begin to fear your neighbor has not equal self-control the very air seems full of mephistophelian gigglings you hear divine strange suspicious gurgles all around you a tickling electric current seems to run around and connect you with a battery of irreverence your side shakes silently until they ache you stuff your handkerchief into your mouth you turn red and nearly burst your cheeks your diaphragm feels contracted and your ribs seem distended at last your neighbor explodes and you follow suit feeling that you must have your laugh though you swing for it even so was the air of the bachelors club heavily charged with laughing gas when israfel sang who broke down first will never be known but as mondego reveled in the long kiss ogling us meantime as though we were old women the pent-up laughter of months broke forth apparently from all points of the compass simultaneously the bachelors club was doubled up like a collapsible garden chair we were all so surprised at the long expected having happened at last that it was some seconds before we could realize that it had happened then as we all became simultaneously aware that we were laughing we felt that we ought to feel ashamed and frozen with horror but now the thought that we were laughing was so exquisitely funny that we could do nothing but roar on so irresistible was a wave of laughter that we were swept helplessly onwards for full five minutes and even when we were left stranded on the shores of breathlessness battered and shattered wrecks rippling eddies and after waves of merriment caught us in the sides and threatened to drag us back into the great gulfs and raging torrents of cachination but the force of the tide grew feebler and feebler gradually the mirth subsided to a spent snigger then sadness fell on the scene and to cover our embarrassment we picked up the broken glass and the pipes with which the floor had been strewn we looked shamefacedly at each other and realized what we had done the charm of the smoking concerts was at an end never again would the big bee bachelors and the little bee bachelors meet with a common consciousness and joy of our guilty secret even if israfel remained in the club after this deadly insult it was doubtful he would ever make us smile again but long before this stage israfel mondego had picked his way disdainfully through our writhing forms and left the club as he went through the door he looked back the expression on his face was peculiar and extensive even i could not interpret it it was a fine blend of assorted emotions his face was like a composite photograph taken from persons in various stages of sorrow and scorn when i came to myself that look was haunting me it was i thought the look of a man who might go and do something desperate we had wounded him deeply who could say to what length he might carry his retaliation perhaps he would even pay his subscription and resign his membership of the club i felt that we ought not to have allowed him to go from among us thus common decency demanded a word of apology an expression of sympathy with him in his righteous indignation but it was too late to overtake him now and yet the effort should be made perhaps he had driven off in a hansom if so i might ascertain the direction he had given perhaps he had walked on towards piccadilly in which case i might yet come upon him besides 
Moses Fitzwilliams was just going to recite, and when, in his tragic moments, Moses's eyes crossed over the bridge of his nose, the result was too tragic. I slipped downstairs, and muffling my throat with my false beard, for the night air was chill after the stifling heat of the club, I looked round. With difficulty I suppressed a cry of astonishment. There, barely two yards from me, leaning against a lamp-post in the soft May night, was Israfel Mondego. I drew back into the passage. His arms were folded, and the lamplight falling full on his features disclosed a face working under deep and apparently painful thought. There he stood in tragic dignity, wrapped in his Inverness cape as in a toga, his dark eyebrows drawn together, his beautiful moustache drooping in sombre gloom, his lips twitching. Around him surged the bustling life of Leicester Square, Ari and Ariette, Henry and Henrietta, the meerschaum and the penny cigar, the clay and the cigarette, the journalist, the music hall artiste, the policeman, the conspirator, the barber, the organ grinder off duty, and the mere foreigner, but he heeded nothing. He stood silent like some better executed and less grimy London statue. Small boys tendered him sanguinary evening papers. Cripples armed with two boxes of matches invoked the blessing of Providence on his head. Kind gentlemen with red noses offered to put their hansoms at his disposal. Flower girls pressed to decorate his buttonhole, but he never looked up. My bosom thrilled with pity. I dimly realized a tragedy going on in the breast of the curled darling of the drawing-room. Sneered at, derided in his own club, he before whom every head, I mean, woman, bowed in adoration. What a terrible shock it must have been to him! What a blessing that, in spite of all his cantable confessions, there was nothing wrong with his heart! How if he had fallen dead at our foolish feet! I wondered what would be the result of his meditations under that street-lamp. Would he call us out one by one and shoot us down like dogs or married men? Little less seemed proportionate to his dignity and passionate romanticism, even if it was believed carrying this weakness so far as to be born in Brazil of a family of old Hildalgos. Yes, he would invite us to spend a day with him on the continent, perhaps in the island of love, where the police organization did not appear to be very effective, and there he would dispatch us with punctuality and speed and waste our return tickets. That was the worst of Mondego. He had no sense of humor. A man with a sense of humor would have been tickled by the situation himself. No, he wouldn't. He would never have sung that song. Mondego had a sense of honor instead which is an appalling misfortune for a man, especially when it is of the foreign variety. His admirers called him a child of the sun, which appears to mean that he had a sort of sunstroke when a child, which left him crying for the moon all the rest of his unnatural life. He was understood to be always asking for love in the beautiful and art and nature and seeing that he got it. A morbid, overstrung, hypersensitive temperament like Israfel's was not the sort to make light of this laughing matter. Oh, if he had only been like me who can see a joke in everything, except the English comic papers. A fracas arising from unceremonious exit of a gentleman from the Alhambra swept Mondego from his lamp-post and aroused him from his reverie. 
He looked round vaguely, then instinctively drew out his watch. It was safe as he put it back. He caught sight of the time. His eyes lit up as with sudden resolution. He jumped into a passing hansom and acknowledged the polite attentions of the gammon with a charming smile and a sixpence. I could not tell which glittered more, the coin or Israfel's teeth. His smile reflected itself in my face. The cloud was dispelled. The worst was over. Mondego had a little sense of humor after all. He had been piqued and chagrined, but he was not such a silly romantic ass as he looked. This is what I thought in my blindness as I turned to go back to the smoking concert. Moses Fitzwilliam's recitation must be over by now. White travel, sir? Yes, sir. The words impinged weirdly on my ear and set my nerves thrilling afresh. Could it be Mondego's driver who had thus spoken? I looked out again. Yes, there was only one hansom within earshot. What was Mondego going to do in Whitechapel? If he had given a ducal address in Belgravia, if he had even mentioned Marlborough House, I should not have been at all alarmed. But Whitechapel? Obeying a sudden impulse and an instinct superior to reason, I followed the cab. But Mondego could not have told the driver he was in a hurry, for the hansom bowled along rapidly. I was quite breathless by the time I met another disengaged hansom. My brain was whirling like the wheels of my vehicle as we pursued the flying tenor at a discreet distance. Whitechapel was alive and gay, and the pavements were crowded with an animated populace and picturesque with costermongers' illuminations, twinkling and fluttering like gigantic fireflies in the balmy air. A cheerful hubbub of voices floated towards the starry heavens, and Cheap Jack sent the ball going merrily. I had never been in Whitechapel before, except under the cover of Bassant's novels. I wondered if this was the dark city of joyless savages he had discovered and determined to be my own Stanley in future. Your professional explorer always discovers someone to rescue. And with the thought of Bassant came another thought that set my lower lip between my teeth. The People's Palace. Yes, that was it. Mondego had been persuaded by a countess or a duchess to sing at the People's Palace. He was on his way now. He was a philanthropist, and I was a fool. Composing myself, I pushed up the trap-door with my umbrella and made inquiries of the driver. He informed me that he had not yet reached the People's Palace, but that we should strike it, metaphorically speaking, in about six minutes. The six minutes crawled like hours. We reached a popular palatial building at last, but our quarry gave no signs of slowing. When we were hopelessly past it, I gave a great sigh of relief and lit a cigarette. Two minutes after, the leading hansom diverged to the left, and we went rattling down a dark, stony street, which looked rather more like Bassant streets, though quite as like the numerous byways in Bayswater. After several intricate windings, I was suddenly jerked forwards by the stoppage of my cab. Mondego had alighted before a patch of brightness fifty yards ahead and was paying his cabman. My heart thumped. I jumped out quickly, threw the driver half a sovereign, and without pausing to answer his inquiries as to what I called the coin, ran towards Israfel, fearing to lose sight of him for a moment. As I approached the patch of light, I was exposed to a cross-fire of strange sounds. From the rear came the quaint curses of a cabman, for they were almost drowned by the roar which burst upon me from in front. A number of masculine voices were intoning, 
some an octave higher than the rest, some an octave lower, the following mysterious chant. Don't you do it, old feller, don't you do it. Don't you do it, old feller, don't you do it. Just you bash his bloomin' hat, and then arks him who's the flat. For he ain't a-goin' to do you, no he ain't, no he ain't. For he ain't a-goin' to do you, no he ain't. The last phrase was given with a demonic yell of conscious supremacy and culminated in a frenzied burst of hand-clapping, ululation, and foot-stamping. My alarm for Israfel was now at fever heat. As I saw him disappear within the public-house, whence these rowdy sounds proceeded, I sped forward so quickly that I reached the bar-door ere it ceased vibrating. I pushed my way through the crowd of frowsy revellers of both sexes, rejoicing that unlike Mondego I was not in evening dress, and attracted no special attention. I caught sight of Mondego's swallowtail mounting a flight of stairs that led up from a room behind the bar. I followed him unhesitatingly. The choruses that descended to meet us convinced me of the nature of our destination. At the top of the stairs a janitor met us, Raphael, with a differential salutation, and me with a request for twopence. Israfel's entry was the signal for an uproarious burst of cheering, under cover of which I slipped into one of the few empty seats and called for a clay to smoke and a pewter pot to bury my face in if Israfel should chance to look at me, but I was not very timorous of discovery. I had great faith in my beard and would have sworn by it like any Turk by Mohammed's. With extreme astonishment I saw the idol of St. James Hall shake hands with several of the seedy-looking men who sat round the central long table, especially with the one-eyed man at the head of it, the hammer in whose hand completed his resemblance to a cyclops. The chairman's right-hand man gave up his distinguished seed to Mondego, who took it complacently and ordered several tankards of refreshment for himself and his immediate environment. I had never seen him so radiantly happy. He no longer looked like Werther and Lord Byron and the Cid rolled into one. His face had the beatitudes of Tartarin, Jack Ashore, and the brothers Cheeryble. He looked every inch the king of this free and easy realm, festive with vulgar mirth, foggy with the vapors of rank tobacco, strident with the roar of undisciplined melody, and repellent with the glare of colored sporting prints and the dinginess of discolored walls. The song with the refrain, Don't You Do It, was soon finished, several curious contingencies being described in it, in which refusal to fall in with your interlocutor's demand was tumultuously advised, supplemented by a recommendation to destroy his headgear. Then the Cyclops rose and stated in slightly ungrammatical language how pleased they were to see their old pal Ari Slapup among them once more. He trusted Mr. Slapup would not go without giving the company forty winks. This did not seem to mean that he was to send them to sleep, for Mondego jumped up beaming and declared that he would do it at once. When the table had ceased to rattle homage, he started. Did you ever observe the diversified ways in which our ocular winks may be wonk? From the winks that's a lightning-like flash in your gaze, to your drawn-out wink when you're drunk? There's a wink of the hawk to his partner at whist. There's a lawyer's when clients are gone. The temperance lecturer's adds to the list, and philanthropy carries it on. There's a wink of the journalist writing a par, and the wink of a reverend skunk. But the wink of the girl at the frivoly bar... It's the winkiest wink ever, wonk. 
Forty wings, forty wings, let me link them, let me blink them. Rorty wings, rorty wings, wings are drinking, wings are clinking. Naughty wings, naughty wings, wings when rinking, rhino jinking, wings for brinking, wings at slinking. Who would link it, who would wink it, forty ways, forty wings. It was an aspect of the question to which I had hitherto devoted no attention, but which was borne in upon me now with convincing comicality. Never have I heard a comic song lending itself so contentiously to mimetic and gesticulary illustration, or so transfigured by it. Never have I seen a comic singer turn his eye to better account. That the species of winks numbered two score, Mondego proved to me by ocular demonstration. No buffoonery withal, but vis comica, of a high order. Every phase of nicotration was reproduced with astonishing realism while the body of the rest of the face were subtly and instantaneously transformed and charged with amazingly clever suggestions of character. The prating politician, the demagogue, the mock prude, the gay coquette, the swindling attorney, the cringing sycophant, the swaggering swag-bellied company promoter, the canting cleric, the rollicking tripler, the amorous dotard, the fuddled master, all these figures in the eternal human comedy— comprehensible equally to the lettered and the unlettered, were hit off with daring strokes as by some French caricaturist. My umbrella was enthusiastic in its praise, and the king of the company had to rise again and again to give encore verses, expanding in affability each time he sat down. At last his movie sujet let him be, and after joining jovially in the choruses of She's a Downy Donna, and What a Bloomin' Whopper, he sauntered out, dispensing nods and becks and wreathed smiles to his riotous lieges. I followed so close on his heels that I all but galled his kibe. He walked on looking for a cab. He stopped to purchase some roasted chestnuts, the last of the season, and as he haggled with the vendor I determined to accost him. I unbearded myself and bearded him. That night he bought no chestnuts, he took me to his crowded chambers in Piccadilly instead, and there, surrounded by the choicest knick-knacks, waste-paper baskets crammed with signed photographs of pretty women, bookcases full of beautifully worked slippers and nightcaps, card racks crammed with coroned invitations, abysmal armchairs heaped with dedicated music, and frail tables creaking under litters of unopened billets due and books of feminine devotion, he told me the story of his life, and I promised to respect his confidence. I cannot better show my respect than by publishing it, for it well deserves the honor. I was born in Whitechapel of rich but honest parents named Davis. My father was a tailor in a large way of business, possessing four shops strewn at intervals along the high road and sprouting out another branch in distant Tottenham Court Road. I was only a child— as I was considered handsome even by other boys' mothers, you may imagine how my own idolized me. She said I was as beautiful as any of the dummies in our shop windows, and she got me up to match, with stylish suits and long curls, and I believe her only regret was that she could not exhibit me behind the plate glass of our West End establishment. But if I could not be a show-child in that sense, I was in every other. I was put up to sing and recite at every party— till only my father's sumptuous spreads and excellent cigars reconciled his guests to the nuisance of having to make a fuss of me. 
the seeds thus scattered fell upon fertile soil and my first visit to the pantomime completed my enchantment and sealed my future at the age of six i had determined to be a clown i communicated my intentions to my father who laughed and gave me sixpence in short he spoiled me completely and blamed me for the sequel at the age of sixteen i left the middle-class school at which i had received a sound commercial education and was set to keep my father's books by this time i had achieved great reputation as an amateur comedian having played the leading part in our annual school theatricals i was also quick with my pen and my lampoons on the headmaster were inferior to no boys but my greatest accomplishment was this i could sing as you have seen to-night a really good comic song i always had the germs of the art in me but i had learnt a great deal from the surreptitious visits to the numerous concert-rooms in and about whitechapel and bow of the type we have just left i was taken to them by an elder boy who is now breaking stones in portland he was a jolly rollicking chap was dabchick but beastly poor i had plenty of pocket-money so between us we managed to have a good deal of fun we dared not go to the more pretentious music-halls of which there were one or two because my sartorial patter sometimes relaxed from his perpetual measure for measure to entertainment of a less classic order and our meetings would not have been cordial you may imagine therefore that i was not happy in a prosaic tailor's shop it was the worst misfit my father had ever perpetrated i spoke to the old man and pointed out that the human being did not grow to pattern and that a ready-made environment would not suit me i said my soul was not comfortable in a slop-work suit and that i wasn't a mere dummy to show off his handiwork but he would not listen to reason so one fine morning he was left childless to solace himself as best he might with his wax models and to extract consolation in his old age from this style fourteen and six but i kept in touch with my mother whose secret missives came to me blistered with tears and swollen with postal orders my adventures were variegated i toured the provinces with kingsley's celebrated comedy company which nobody had ever heard of and which placarded the provinces with notices from the great london newspapers which any one was at liberty to look for in the files i took the name of harry slapup which to my perial imagination seemed a fine dashing name for a low comedian it was a name under which i had sung comic songs at the crown concert hall there were many aspirants at the crown it was a halfway house to professional music hall singing it was good practice and tradition told of two famous comic singers who had matriculated at the crown several lesser lights had undoubtedly first found a hearing in that smoky alcoholic room well under the name of harry slapup i saw a good deal of life behind the scenes and found it was not all beer and skittles though there was much more of the former than the latter happily i was blessed with a strong sense of humour and a love of change which reconciled me to the awful smells the precipitous ladders the death-trap doors and the piggish dressing dens when we hadn't to dress in the draughty passages and to the fact that the ghost did not always walk even when we played hamlet but for my mother's letters i should often have lacked decent food and shelter i did not stay long with a comedy company which burst up suddenly as though it were a city company it seemed a hard life at the time playing three or four parts a week 
though I was always a quick study, but I regretted it when I joined the company which took a comic opera on tour, and I had to play the same part every night all over Great Britain. It was awfully dull all day with no rehearsals to take up the time, and in some of the sleepy, stupid boroughs of merry England on rainy winter days I should have died of ennui if I had not suddenly remembered my literary gifts and covered reams of the fool's cap with burlesque and comic songs. I even wrote the music to my words, for I could always evolve an air with tolerable facility, though I had no idea of orchestration. I shall never forget my pride when I was allowed to introduce into a comic opera a humorous song written and composed by myself, the conductor of the orchestra undertaking to vamp up an accompaniment, and my pride was only slightly damped by its being a frost. I knew it was not my song that had fallen flat, but the orchestra. Later I studied the pianoforte with zeal whenever I found one in my lodgings. To cut a long story short, I played for seven years in the provinces, never out of an engagement, for I was able to waive the question of screw, and never in a good one. I have played in everything from Hamlet to Carmen, I sang and danced and spouted, and once my childhood's dream was fulfilled, I said, Here we are again, for six weeks every night at Chittister. But that was the high-water mark of my success as a comic mummer. All my other parts were as devoid of fat as the kind of Pharaoh's first vision, but at the end of seven years Harry Slapup was as obscure a name as it is now. But I still believed I was one of the few men in England who could sing a comic song, I had heard lots of men try to do it, and I knew I only wanted my chance to go in and win. Then I got a wire from my mother to come to London. I had seen her once or twice during her annual fortnight at Ramsgate, where my father only came down for the weekend, but I had never seen the man who thought his progenitorship gave him the right to trim and clip my life with his shears to the pattern admired in Whitechapel. Of course he disinherited me. He had had a son and heir, he said, and he was not going to lose one and keep the other. This did not worry me. The original Adam was strong in me. I despise clothes. I abhor the money that came out of the pockets of trousers warranted to wear. But this telegram altered matters and repaired the breaches. My father had gone bankrupt. How he had managed it with his safe, steady business puzzled me as I flew homewards by the night express. I could not credit him with the requisite ingenuity. However, I soon learnt the cause. He had tried the fatal experiment of applying the hire system to his business, forgetting that in the case of default of payment it was an easier matter to strip people's rooms of furniture than their bodies of raiment. The calamity broke my father's heart. He died penniless, and I lent him the shilling with which to cut me off, I paid his insurance money to our creditors, and thus my mother and I were left alone in the world, with nothing to support us but a comic song that had yet to be sung. Well, come what might, I determined to sing it in London. There was neither gold nor glory to be won in the provinces. I had as little chance in London as in the country, so why wander from the centre again? I looked over my manuscripts, pieced together an entertainment, and made up my mind to go in for something high class and not overcrowded. In short, I resolved to become a society clown. You see, the child is father to the man after all. 
End of section 9.